Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. I'm Marek Hodakiewicz. I'm with the uh, Kościuszko Chair in Polish Studies, and I also run the Center for Intermarium Studies. Today I would like to commemorate and remember the imposition of martial law 40 years ago. My goodness. In Poland on December 13th, 1981. To make a long story short, Pope John Paul II came to visit his homeland for the first time in June 1979. Multitudes turned out to see him in perfect harmony and peace. And he looked at them and he said, let the Spirit descend on this land, this land. And then he added, fear not. Suddenly, millions ceased to fear. That is the indispensable spiritual dimension of what would transpire in a short year. Strikes broke out in Poland in the summer of 1980. Solidarity was born. Almost 10 million people enrolled. That means every adult in Poland, or almost every adult, was a Solidarity member. Funny thing is, some of them were Communist Party members, incongruously. Solidarity struggled from its very inception. Strikes became a its main weapons. The government, under pressure from Moscow, and in fear for its monopoly of domination of power in Poland, the Polish communists attempted to stall, cajole, blackmail, demean solidarity, but it Plotted on. It talked. For the first time since the communist seizure of power, and since, I guess, crushing uh, the parliamentary opposition, the peasant, Polish Peasant Party in particular, back in the mid 40s, and exterminating the underground, in particular, uh, armed underground the so-called forgotten or cursed soldiers, the communists had to reckon with a mass movement, not just dissidents, with a mass movement that threatened to undermine their power, perhaps even replace them. Those are the fears, those are the dreams, uh, but not reality because we had the Soviet Union. The Soviets were alarmed 
they put pressure on their stooges, puppets in Warsaw. The puppets in Warsaw were afraid to act. There was leadership change a couple of times. Finally, General Jaruzelski came up on top and he promised some spit in Polish, but he was afraid. So he called on the Soviets to invade, to intervene. That's how afraid he was. But the Soviets said, no, you deal it you deal with it yourself. Deal with solidarity yourself. Smash it, but on your own. We're not going to help. Was that unusual? Well, if we look at history, in times of crisis, everything is fluid, except, of course, strategic interests. And it was in the Soviet Union's strategic interest to keep Poland under its boot, under its heel subdued, enslaved. In 1956, when Polish communists, without Moscow's permission, exchanged one set of Stalinist leaders for a set of Stalinist leaders who had not been as compromised, so for Gomułka, who became a full-fledged national Bolshevik, Moscow wanted to intervene, to invade, but when a high-powered Soviet delegation arrived in uh, uh, Warsaw, the Soviets found out that Gomułka was a man to their liking. They simply took offense at not being consulted properly. So they let Gomułka run the show because communist stooges remained in power. In Hungary, it was a different story. The Soviets vacillated. They even left Budapest after initial fighting. But then there was no Soviet, there was no Hungarian Gomuka. Imre Noj was nothing in comparison. The power was in the streets, and the streets were in control by Hungarian workers and students. And those wanted to fight communism. They wanted freedom for Hungary. They wanted Hungary to be neutral. It was a pipe dream. So the Soviets reinvaded and crushed the uprising, thus setting the limits of what was permissible. A communist stooge, a national Bolshevik in charge? Yes. Nobody else outside of that paradigm would be permissible. No, no. And then there was another, or history yields another example of what could have awaited Jaruzelski. The Soviet ferocity in crushing an independence bid by their satellite was directly related to the level of resistance. So Hungary got out of hand, it was crushed ruthlessly, because the level of violence by the insurgents precluded any other reaction. Had they reacted like the Czechs, mostly peacefully and through a couple of self-immolations in 1968, that would have been a different story. 
the Soviets invaded. There were hardly any casualties. There was hardly any resistance, but nonviolent resistance. So the communist leadership, which failed to maintain its grip on the nation, on the Czechs and Slovaks, the communist leadership was punished mildly. Dubček was flown out of Czechoslovakia, first to Russia, and then he was demoted to serve as a, uh, di as a uh, director of a collective farm. Now, Imre Noj was shot in comparison. Hungarian insurgents were executed by the thousand. Not so much in Czechoslovakia. People lost jobs. Many fled, like in Hungary. But overall, the repression was rather mild by Soviet standards. Here is another example of things getting out of, out of hand. Afghanistan started deteriorating following the coup that overthrew the king. The successive regimes were increasingly pro-Moscow. They essentially became puppets of the Kremlin. But each government was unable to deal properly with uh, uh, pro-independence, pro-Islam insurgency that broke out, broke out across the country by the end of the 1970s. In the summer of 1979, the Soviet Politburo under Brezhnev, in no uncertain terms, stated that they would not intervene in Afghanistan. But then in December 1979, they invaded more. They uh, parachuted commandos, the Spetsnaz, and the Spetsnaz team got into the presidential palace and slaughtered everyone, including the president and his family. Why? Because the, the president failed the Soviet Union. He forced the Soviets to intervene directly, as opposed to through their puppets. So those were the dilemmas that General Yaruzelsky faced. And that is why he wanted the Soviets to solve the dilemmas for him. He wanted them to invade, to intervene. The Soviets would have none of it. It's, it was more convenient for the Soviet Union to have the communist puppets in Poland to take care of solidarity on their own. It is said that had Jaruzelski not imposed martial law, there would have been a Soviet invasion. Well, had Jaruzelski not imposed martial law, there would have been more strikes, perhaps more violence, perhaps not. The Catholic Church didn't like violence and did not encourage violence. But the Soviets had to have a resolution. So Jaruzelski 
decided to impose martial law and following the orders from Moscow he did it himself but he didn't do it to save Poland he did it to save his own skin why? Well, as I've mentioned Imre Noj was executed because things got out of hand seriously and violently in Hungary same story in Afghanistan so Jaruzelski knew he knew that he had to do something because if he failed and the Poles faced the Soviet invasion in, an, in a violent manner, if they defended themselves with arms, then the Soviets would have punished Jaruzelski accordingly. Maybe they would have murdered him, like the president of Afghanistan. Maybe they would have just made him a, 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 a prisoner or a director of a collective farm. So Jaruzelski, by imposing martial law, did not save Poland. He saved his own skin. What would have been its educational and perhaps entertaining to ponder, but let's just face on the general. Jaruzelski was not a savior of Poland. He was a savior of his own skin. And now I'd like to share with you a few personal recollections. Um, I was in Scotland when strikes broke out in Poland in 1980. Actually, I turned 18 in Denmark. I was visiting with my aunt and as a gift um, she bought me an interrail pass. I procured all the necessary visas and I was able to go to Scotland. It was wonderful. Uh, my uncle Chris, second cousin, six years older than me, joined me eventually in Scotland because my family was, especially my parents in Poland, were uh, apprehensive about my whereabouts. Uh, I was having a jolly good time, even though the weather was nothing like in California, but I enjoyed it. So, when the strikes broke out in Poland and my uncle Chris and me preached about uh, the Poles' anti-communism to anybody who would listen in Scotland, uh, I wasn't so much surprised, but I was convinced there would be an anti-communist uprising. Now, I headed back to Denmark and my aunt wanted me to stay. Uh, perhaps to go to California to stay with my step-parents or my friends of my family uh, and attend college there. I didn't want to. So essentially I hopped on a ferry and went back to Poland. Uh, and for a year and a half I was exasperated with all the talking that Solidarity did. I saw it as no action. Boys are stupid. I was no exception. I wanted to fight the communists. I wanted to fight for freedom. Uh, my father uh, had been with the scouting group of the Committee to Defend Workers. So when Solidarity arose, he was one of the first to join. 
and organized his workers and his company and others. A, by the way, so did my mother. My mother was helped out with uh, illegal printing and did all the logistical activities uh, for my father and with my father, even the kids, that is me and my little sister, uh, did the same thing. But that's just our family tradition. In any event, to make a long story short, on the night of December 12th, after 11 o'clock, the secret police came and arrested my father. They initially brought him to uh, the local police station in Warsaw and Jolibos, the northern suburb. He was the first ever to challenge legally the arrest warrant. He said it was illegal and unconstitutional. It was antedated and it relied on, long, on no known Polish communist law. The communists, of course, were not amused and they shipped him to the Białowęka prison outside of Warsaw. Uh, me, I was uh, with friends, actually, with uh, Dr. Peter Panherski, who is now the head of psychiatry at the University of Alabama. Uh, I was with him at a club. Uh, me and his girlfriend and my girlfriend headed back home well after midnight. The streets were deserted. There were no buses. It was snowing. And to our great chagrin, we were coming back, heading north from the city center, from Hebride, that was the name of the club, uh, there were armored vehicles. First we saw armored vehicles on the streets. And we saw soldiers warming in full gear, warming themselves up. We thought it was weird. But, and we walked home. And we went to sleep. And sometime around, I don't know, 7 or 6.30 in the morning, there was banging on the door, ringing on the bell. This time it wasn't the police. It was um, my sister with her friends to inform me that my father was, um, that my father had been arrested uh, and taken away. My sister was hysterical. I uh, take news like this calmly in general, so this was not an exception. What else can you expect from the communists? But terror and repression. We had to assess the situation. My sister left. I later saw my mother, then I returned home. And my friend, Dr. Peherski, he wasn't a doctor. He was 19 years old. I was 18 and he was 19. Uh, he uh, came back from his house. He was a neighbor down the street. So he came back to stay with me. And I lived at my grandma's place, which was empty. My grandmother had passed away a few years back. So I lived there. Uh, we decided to do something. So we took markers, we didn't have any paint, and we headed out on the street at night during martial law, violating the curfew, and we walked 
around the Wilson Square, which the communists, the communists called the Commune de Paris Square, and we defaced communist posters announcing martial law. So we changed Polish words to German words. When there said an announcement, obwieszczenie, we drew with big markers the uh, Kantmachung. So it would look like Nazi announcements. And we changed, of course, the signature of uh, on those posters to SS und Polizei. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We walked around sometimes, some for an hour or so, and it got cold, so we went back home. The following day, my uncle Chris, Chris Cieszewski, who is now a professor of forestry at the University of Georgia. Chris Cieszewski came to me yelling that I told you so. Why? He had been the only person to have escaped from a dragnet on December 9th, I believe, in my neighborhood, when the communists crushed the strike of the fire cadet school. So he thought something was afoot. We also had uh, at my parents' house other signals. There were sympathetic people who, who said that essentially um, a state of emergency was in preparation. People who were uh, uh, well connected, one of them uh, was a child of a former Stalinist high ranking. Um, uh, uh, police, a secret police officer, colonel. So this guy felt sympathetic and he, his wife taught me history uh, in high school, so he decided to warn us. But of course nobody took him seriously uh, except us kids because we thought in terms of World War II how our grandparents described their lives, so we thought that the communists would strike for sure. Solidarity people were convinced that, hey, 10 million people in the Union, or 9 million, over 9 million, but everybody said 10 million. And the communists were not going to do anything to anybody. That was almost a default position. At any rate, Uncle Chris came, and he said, get up, let's wait for the dark, so curfew again. And we headed out to collect printing equipment from the offices of the Independent Students' Union. Uh, Uncle Chris took a backpack. I don't remember if I had anything, but uh, we went to the city center again. And I remember there was a... Uh, Warsaw Technical University's independent students' offices were at the Remont Club. Uh, we got there. Unfortunately, we were too late because the secret police had earlier descended on the place and they destroyed everything, took whatever equipment they could, smashed everything else, including radiators. Uh, we tried to go to... Uh, his school, which was a school of agriculture and forestry, my uncle Chris's school, but this was too dangerous. 
So we turned around, went home. Afterwards, Uncle Chris building on his uh, pre-martial law um, friendships and uh, connections reassembled a part of his independent student unions cell so eccentrically I was uh, involved with uh, the independent students union of the agricultural and forestry uh, higher school in Warsaw rather than say the University of Warsaw or anything else incidentally I had a passport and I was supposed to pick up my visa before martial law to come to the United States to study at the College of San Mateo in California. That didn't work out. My, the, communist, the communists confiscated my passport. It was invalidated. I didn't get my American visa or anything. That was it. And I was happily enthralled at all the opportunities to fight the communists because, as I said before, boys are stupid. Uncle Chris organized his group. It was a small outfit. I think there were about 15 people involved. And now we know that at least three of them were secret, secret police snitches. One of them was uh, an outright agent of penetration and two broke down and snitched. So it's uh, nothing happened to me. A, but I do have uh, documents from secret police archives regarding, regarding that case. Uh, Uncle Chris would bring leaflets. Eventually he brought the most primitive printing device uh, on which uh, uh, me and Dr. Penhesky even printed a, uh, a run. Uh, of uh, of uh, leaflet, uh, we had a lot of fun. I remember I didn't drink at that time. I was not interested in vodka, wine, or beer. So Uncle Chris put me in charge of collecting dues from members and others, uh, including for the newspapers I would hand out underground newspapers I would hand out, hand out so my refrigerator at my grandma's house was full of vo vodka and one time my mom came to bring me some food which was rationed eh, and I you couldn't buy food or almost at all there was hardly anything in the stores unless you had a coupon and there the choices were very limited um, we had um, um, so my mother came with food and uh, <laughs> she discovered 40, 45 bottles of vodka in my refrigerator and she cried because she thought we had parties. And of course I did not disabuse her um, because of the oath of secrecy that Uncle Chris swore me to. Well, as I said, for someone like me was fun and games. It wasn't fun and games when we had to, we, uh, we got to see my father. We had to stand in line sometimes for many hours because the communists wouldn't let us into prison. And in particular, the first months were tough uh, on the account of the cold. 
So you had to get out to Białowęka. It was difficult. A, the public transportation was almost non-existent. And then we had to stand in line and wait for the communists to let us in. A, that part of martial law, visiting my father in jail, I didn't enjoy. Um, but there were other things that uh, we did in addition to our underground work I volunteered for the primate of Poland's charitable committee and I worked at as a volunteer at Święty Jacek, St. Hyacinthus uh, Church in Warsaw. Uh, those I remember Father Zeja, Father Sali, one was a, a veteran of uh, World War II, a chaplain of uh, uh, Grey Ranks. I also dealt with um, my own parish where I was baptized, St. Stanislav Kostka by Platz Wilsona and Jolie Bosch, and there was Monsignor uh, Taofil Bogutski and Father Jurek Popiuszko. Now, Father Popiuszko worked with my father or he would pick up newspapers, underground newspapers, already in the 1970s. He and Father Henio Bogutski, uh, who was from St. John Conscious, though. Uh, so, anytime I needed something that I couldn't get at Święty Jacek's church in um, uh, Stare Miasto, Old Town, I would head to my parish and talk to, usually, Father Jurek. And Father Jurek would hook me up. Usually, uh, this was a, a weird situation because I didn't want to be formally listed uh, and the church committee thought that it was imperative to be listed in case if I were snatched by the secret police. So I would be covered as a volunteer with a charitable committee and then they would be able to help me. But I thought if they listed me, the secret police would get my number. I had no idea about the snitches and infiltrators in our underground group yet, so I thought the less footprint, the better uh, for me. And therefore, I was doing my work informally, and it consisted of uh, delivering necessities to wives of political prisoners. Why? Many were ashamed to accept charity. When their husbands were in jail, the wives were very reluctant to, many wives were very reluctant to seek help. Not that they were ashamed that their husbands were in jail, but simply they were not used to begging. And that's how many of them saw it. So I remember, for instance, Jan Dvorak's family, the wife, uh, they had twins, I believe. So the wife would not uh, uh, would, would not ever, as she saw it, stoop to ask. Since I knew those people from my father's dissident days, I knew them from solidarity days, and I also knew them from jail because they also lined up to see their families, lined up with us. And I would uh, uh, 
I would therefore go to their places and deliver stuff. Or I'd give stuff to my mom. And this way it was done informally and pride didn't suffer. Uh, there were a number of volunteers at the church. Uh, we were the depot, St. Hyacinthus, St. Jacek's church was a depot for St. Uh, uh, Martin's church. Uh, I knew, uh, I think, the most formidable uh, person at St. Martin's church was Ligia Iwakovichovna Greinert. One time the secret police attacked the church and she and they, the cops shoved nuns and uh, barged in. She defended everybody. She was a formidable woman. So they broke her hand uh, in any event. Of course I partied like all kids, of course. I played, I studied. Oh, I was expelled from school and therefore I had to learn essentially overnight uh, one semester worth of material regarding uh, forest exploitation issues and I passed an exam to be admitted in mid-year. It was a bogus admission. Uh, to uh, a forestry school outside of Warsaw where I immediately started scheming to appropriate their um, ditto machine, their printing machine, but it came to naught, fortunately. Uh, so my memories were one of were ones of fun and struggle when uh, a there was violence from December 13th, I'm talking riots. We, Dr. Pehersky and I, so Peter and I, attempted to find the riot. And sometimes we would get stuck on the bus in the riot and we were gassed despite ourselves. But thank God the bus driver would carry us away. Another story I remember, leafletting on the bus and people were scared to take leaflets. I thought they were cowards and they probably thought I was a secret police uh, uh, collaborator or provocateur. In one instance a driver uh, took the leaflets from me, that is he accepted the leaflets from me and he let me out at an unscheduled stop because he figured I was just a stupid boy who didn't know what he was doing, endangering himself and everybody else. Anyway, doctor. Penhersky was arrested one time when he violated curfew and it took some doing to uh, square that away. I remember this once again as a series of adventures and misadventures mixing mundane and uh, uh, thrilling and terrifying. I remember Uncle Chris punching out a uh, a, uh, a, a policeman, a communist policeman, because he had uh, a, a, a printing machine in his back, uh, backpack and uh, uh, underground newspapers, so he didn't want himself to be searched and just punched them out and escaped. There was about, I don't know, 70 pound backpack on him. He was one tough guy. My idol, 
at that time and until today. He's great. So is Dr. Pehersky. Anyway, I'm outing them. I don't think the, uh, they have ever shared those stories, mostly because they're bums. I have begged them many times to write it down, and they don't want to. In any event, there were huge riots on May the 3rd, 1981, uh, as well as uh, there was a demonstration on May 1st. We rained on the communist parade, but there was no violence that I can remember. But on May the 3rd, which is Poland's Constitution Day, banned by the communists, there was some violence. And again, uh, during the summer, we went to uh, the Mazurian Lakes with Dr. Pehersky and had a lot of fun. And then we returned. And again, there were riots, which uh, uh, largely escaped us. We were late. I remember that distinctly. We were again chasing uh, riots. Um, and one of the problems was that our girlfriends insisted on coming with us, so uh, we tried to escape from them, and it didn't work out. In any event, I was uh, able, and this is through my mother, through bribes, thanks to the U.S. Embassy, which uh, essentially handled my correspondence. I didn't get any mail at home because there was censorship. The communists confiscated mail from the United States. Uh, suddenly I found out on Monday that I was to leave on Thursday for the United States. And everybody made bets that uh, I would be detained at the airport. Uh, I was, everybody was flattering me because somehow they didn't stop me. And I left. And that's my martial law story. And I will stick with it. I'm Marek Hodakiewicz. We're at the Institute of World Politics with the Kościuszko Chair in Polish Studies and the Center of Intermarium Studies. Thank you very much.